You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. I'm your host, David Frizzell, and in this episode, we welcome back one of my all-time favorite guests, Campbell McPherson. I first spoke to Campbell last year in episode 161. It was all about his book, The Power to Change. And this time, we'll be talking about his latest book, You Part Two, Thriving in the Second Half of Your Life. And it is, I can confidently say, another ripping book. As I mentioned early in the conversation you're about to hear, I started reading the book as preparation for the interview, but very quickly I realized that it was a book that would have a powerful impact on my life. As is true for everything we do, the way we approach the second half, as is true for everything we do, the way we approach the second half of our life will determine how it plays out. As Campbell says, in an aging society that is ironically obsessed with youth, we second halfers have no intention of fading away. This is our time to shine. So, if you're older than about 40, you are coming close to the beginning of your second half. It's time to embrace it, plan for it, relish all the good stuff it will have to offer, and of course, to be aware of the challenges it will likely throw your way. If you're up for that, nailing the second half of life, then you're in the right place. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Campbell McPherson. Campbell McPherson, welcome back to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Look, Campbell, I would interview you any day, any time. <laughs> we were just joking about the time. I shouldn't have favorites, and I said this on a LinkedIn post last year, I shouldn't have favorites. My podcast is like my children, but I did have a favorite last year. Your episode about the power of change was easily my favorite episode last year. I loved it. I have listened to it twice as well as having recorded it with you. Favourite episode, hands down. Well, it makes me very humble. It makes me grin from ear to ear, as you could probably see if you're on the video. Yeah, mate, fantastic. I I love it. And and it's not the last time I will listen to it either. And I've used your stuff. I always reference you when I use your stuff, those those five truths about change. I love it. You have brought Kubler-Ross back to life for me. I knew it existed. The way you talk about it and explain it is fabulous. And you know what? There's some common themes between that conversation, of course, and the conversation we're about to have. Your new book, You Part Two, mate, it, you've done it again. It's a great book. You're a terrific writer, but it's it's not a business book. It's a book about life. And I love that about it. You know, I, I'm 46. I'll turn 47 this year. And I thought, okay, I'm reading this book for the podcast, but I only got through a page and a half before I realized I was reading it for myself. And it was going to be a terrific book for myself. But I bounced around. And, it, you know, it, it's not a hard-hitting book. You don't hit the reader over the head. I felt like I'd spent a few hours chatting with you and Jane about life. That's how the book was. Uh, that is the best compliment you could possibly – that's what we were aiming for. That's exactly what I've got. We, we, we're not there to preach we're not there to say smug marrieds got it all sorted, listen to us, you know, because that's rubbish. It was supposed to be a conversation. We didn't want it to be, I like your term, hard hitting. We didn't want it to be preachy. We didn't want it to be, and here's the five step 
process to you know to wonderfulness. You know, it's, we didn't want any of that sort of sort of nonsense. So thank you, thank you so much. And there is a link. There's a big link. the The first book was about leading change. That was the change catalyst. the The second book was about embracing change, but with a hint at the uh, workplace, really. And then this third book is all about thriving in the second half of your life, which is the subtitle. And it was aimed at people your age, to be honest, even though I'm 10 years older. It was aimed at people your age because I looked back and went, you know, at 45 plus, that's when the second half started. And I hadn't even thought it through. So I put my head, mostly my mind, in at age 45 plus to write the book. Obviously, there's some stuff that we use. We're now in our late 50s, but we Sometimes it's aimed at at people that age too, but it's anyone that has either started or is about to start or is in the middle of the second half. And yeah, and that second half is all about change. And it's for anyone who does things in life consciously. I've been asked a number of times about the lessons I've learned from this podcast. And, And you know, the number one lesson, I've talked to a huge range of people about a huge range of topics, but the number one thing I've learned that if it's about leadership or different parts of your life or your relationships or the way you communicate, whatever it is, the lesson I've learned from my guests is to do it consciously, to learn and think about better ways, to examine the way that you do it, to not let reflex or natural causes just take their course, but to grab the bull by the horns and own it. And your book is very much in that theme owning the second half of your life. Very much so, David. I really like that about being conscious. I mean, Jane would say mindful as her, uh, she's a brilliant yoga teacher and yoga therapist. And do you know, there was something we learned doing this book that was so painfully obvious as all, as all insights end up being, but we learned we do the same thing. And that was really quite remarkable. We do the same thing for different people. So she left her uh, financial services marketing career 20 years ago now, but 18 years ago, something like that. And she helps people embrace change, cope with all sorts of, uh, of issues, both mental and physical in her yoga therapy and one-to-one yoga. And I help leaders to lead change and employees to embrace change. And we realized not only we were doing the same thing for different sets of people, we were using the same diagrams, the same words, the same feelings, the same approach. And and we sat down and did that and thought, that's hilarious, because I already said, we have to write this book. And she said, great, let's do it together. And we realized we were doing the same thing. So it all gelled really well. Sometimes you're not sure if it's me writing or Jane writing in the book, which is really good. But uh, it's, it's, it's all about change. And it's all about what we, the term we coined or the term we heard and put in the book was radical acceptance. And that's what you're talking about. It's not just being a bystander to your life, but it's not also when you say uh, being mindful or being conscious, it's not being in control all the time because we're not. It's not about control. It's about working out the times where things happen, you know, changes happen. And it's working out how to accept that, but not passively because then you can become a victim, but radically, which is get on the front foot and go, okay, this has happened now. What can I do about it? And I think. Well, that's Jane's favorite chapter in the book is called Radical Acceptance and uh, I think is the holy grail of contentment. I think, I think that, that chapter is called. Hey, in the book, you tell the story about how this project became important to you and, and it solidified when you were struck by an advertisement in an airport. Tell us about that moment and, and the importance of this project to you. Well, I was doing some work in, in Zurich and I've been thinking about this book for a while 
now. I was originally going to call it the R word because that's the word, the retirement word is not is a word that is not allowed to be uttered in, in this house or hasn't been for, you know, 10 or 15 years. So I was thinking about writing the book and then I saw this ad, a wonderful ad for UBS private banking when I was on, uh, doing some work in Switzerland. And it was of a silver fox. He was in his 60s. He was sailing his yacht across Lake Toon or wherever he was or the Med. And he just looked vital. He looked full of life. And it said, <laughs> it said, 60 is the new 40, bit of a cliche. But then it said, do you have the right plan? And I said, that's, I said this out loud accidentally, that's how they should be marketing to us. And the lady in front of me on the escalator sort of, sort of jumped. And I went, that's, that's it. And that gave the impetus. So that night in the hotel, I started to sketch out the book. But the interesting thing is, when I showed Jane that ad, because I could find it online, she completely revolted on it. She said, that's ridiculous. I can see why you like that because UBS are going after men and men think 60s and new 40 is vitality and, and, and energy. 60s and new 40 to women just says youth is better, younger is better, and you're getting older. Why don't you pretend to look 40? And, I, and that was the moment where I knew we had to write this together because it was the, it was the Venus and Mars moment par excellence. <laughs> it sure was. Now, you, you mentioned retirement there, and I'm going to come back to that because it's a, such an interesting conversation. But We'll try and attack this with a little bit of structure. I want to talk about what second halfers, what 50 pluses feel most daunted about when they ponder their second half, you know, what you think people most often get wrong and where you think the great opportunities are for people to change their mindset about entering the second half. So let's start with the first one, Campbell. What do you think is most daunting to people when they wake up one day and realize they're probably into the second half. The whistle has blown. The second half has begun. <laughs> the oranges have been consumed. Yes. Uh, the second half is on. The most daunting thing to so many of us when we realize that we've, we've reached the second half is the past. We look back and we tend to focus, or sometimes we tend to focus on the things that didn't go well, the things we didn't do, and the regrets. There's a, a colleague I, I know who has, has just started to wind down, and he's, he's just turned 60, started to wind down, and his job has been in insurance industry for 35 years. And he looks back on his career, he was saying the other day, and he hates it, and he hates himself, and he's just full of regrets for saying, I didn't want to do this, I only did it to please my father, and I've had 35 years in an industry that I didn't enjoy. My kids are now going to the same industry following their father, and he's just got depressed. Now, so I think one of the great things you said there was mindset. So I, I think what we have to do is it's all about attitude. If we sort of think, okay, that second half, there's some great things that have happened in the first half, sorry. There's some great things that have happened. But it's gone. It's over. There's nothing we can do about it. So why don't we learn from it and look forward to the next 20, 30, 40 years? And what can we do about it? And that's the radical acceptance uh, concept. But this fellow we, we were talking to, it was, it was sad to see. But what he now needs to do is to get over and go, well, there's been a lot of positives. You know, he's financially secure. He's had a great career. He's had some really fun times with some great holidays. With There are positives in the last that he's got a great family. There's so many positives that he can now at 60 go, well, I've got 20, 30 fab years ahead of me. What am I going to do with it? Now is his time, which is how we start the book. This is our time. 
And I love the point that you made. You made a whole bunch of fabulous points about that. And I want, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of things I want to ask you. You know, I'll start with this. You made a point about how old people used to look old much younger. And you made me, and I played in my mind something that I'm going to have to get from my mum now. And it's this old video that I saw of me as a baby and my older sister as a walking, you know, little one, toddler, barely older than a toddler. And she was going down the slide and my grandparents were there having a great time, you know, enjoying their oldest grandchild. And this would have been in the mid 70s. And they looked as though, so they were probably not that much older than I am now. They looked yep. as though they would have been old in the 60s. I mean, and this is in the mid-70s. Exactly. They looked so old. They dressed old. They acted old. And, yep. you know, bless them. They, you know, they had great grandparents. But you make that point so well. And when your friend talks about, you know, laments the wasted career and you have to point out to him that, hey, there's so many good things about what you've done, but hey, either, anyway, it's over. The second half is still to come. And I wonder if the difference between the advice you're giving him and what my grandparents were working on, this idea that you just sort of settled into being old, you know, pretty early in life, was the fact that, you know, the simple fact that their life expectancy was much shorter. Your friend it's, can- There's certainly an element of that. Certainly an element of that. And yes, yes, my friend, he could expect to live to, you know, wealthy Westers could expect to live on average into their late 80s, if not beyond. And that's going so to change like so significantly. it's not over. No. I mean, 60, he's 81 right now is the life expectancy for Australians. Mm. And you, po- you point out that Americans, it's a couple of years younger, which is sad yeah. indictment on their healthcare system. I'm not sure what it is in the UK. But even by the similar time to Australia, very similar. your 60-year-old friend gets there, it's not going to be 80 anymore. It's going to be exponentially different. And there's a huge discrepancy between wealthy, the stats anyway, between people who have money and people who don't, and people who have money in the States. It's something like 17-year difference in life expectancy if you've got money compared to if you don't. You know, it's, it's quite, it's, it's frightening. It's wrong. But this friend of ours, yes, could expect to live a long time. I love the fact you you liked the bit about the grandparents. I was I was watching you grin as you were telling reliving your story. I was grinning as I was writing the bit about my grandparents. I had the most wonderful, kind, lovely grandfather who was six foot two and as skinny as a beanpole. But he looked old from the moment that oh, I was walking. You know, I, I so. Yeah, by the time I was three, he was well, what's that? Nineteen sixty-six. So he he would have been probably only forty, and he looked old then. You know, and and he dressed old then. And my grandmother, who was four foot ten, no matter which way you looked at her, she was hilarious. She was old as well. Except the differences with with Nana is that she was never old mentally. She was always cheeky and mischievous right up until you know until she died at ninety-three. And in fact, I'll give you an example. A few weeks before she died, I was over a meeting with her in, in Australia and um, and we sat on a bed and we were, we were just having a lovely time chatting away. And, and I said, so what did you do this morning? She said, oh, well, I'll tell you how I start every single day. She, and this was 93, about a few weeks before she died. She said, I start the day, I wake up, I open one eye, I see that I'm still alive and I say, damn. <laughs> <laughs> 
That is funny. I laughed out loud when I read that part in the book. So there's there's no doubt that you and I looking back on our grandparents as as very young boys is unfair, but the photos actually prove it. It's the old photos I've looked back on and noticed that at an age not much older than I am now, my grandparents had settled into a, an elderly person kind of way. And I wonder if, if that whole mentality, you know, because you think about from their point of view, their grandparents probably, you know, had a life expectancy not much greater than 50. And so it wasn't far away from them to see that that life ended at about that time. Subconsciously, that would have affected the way that they acted, the way they dressed, the way they thought. Yes, totally. And it was very common for people to retire at 65 and dutifully die a couple of years later. Absolutely. You know, it was very, very, very normal. And the economy relied on it. The way that we've structured <laughs> the did. pension and, and everything around Good that has, has relied on it. Mm. And that's why you see politicians scrambling now. I mean, I, our current politician, when he was treasurer, sort of floated, you know, those, those hot air balloons they put up to see if they get shot down, the idea of extending the retirement age in Australia to 70. And it was shot down. I haven't heard him mention it again. And as cruel as that sounds, you can kind of see where it's going because if our life expectancy is changing so significantly and we've got this massive bubble, this massive age group bubble of people who are going to be post-65 when they haven't been replaced by working age people, that's going to be a problem actually. Oh, well, I talk about that in the book. That was hammered home when I was at Zurich a while ago, probably 15 years ago. When they realized, obviously, with all the actuaries that they had, and so did most of the, the companies in the FTSE 100, realized they couldn't afford the final salary pension or super that they were providing their uh, their staff. So it was cut from but 164th to 148th every year that you, you, you gained. Every year, you got a 48th of your final salary pension locked in, uh, salary locked in. And they closed it to new members straight away. And this was probably 2008. And it was happening all over uh, the FTSE 100. I think now of the top 100 companies in the UK, when I did the research, it was only 19 had final salary pension schemes at all, and they were all closed to new entrants. And it's probably down to 15 now. So so companies can't afford it. Countries can't afford it. And it's a real issue. That's why there's a big chapter in here, a big section here called money that talks about how can we afford it? Financial planning in the second half. I'm not a financial planner. And I started off in a quite a humorous way that we can talk about in a second, but I go through a couple of tips. And I, I also then learning from some IFAs that I've dealt with and that I really respect a few of the things that they do with their clients. Because in the UK, a third of people are going to have to rely on the state pension. A third of people are currently in their 50s and 60s, and the state pension is only £7,000 a year over here is the average. It's not enough to live on. It's half as much as Australia. And of course, Australia, we got ahead of the curve in Oz 30-odd years ago with compulsory super, which has been a huge benefit. But the state pension here is atrocious and just not enough to live off. So there's a lot of people in the second uh, in the second half are going to really struggle unless they suddenly stop take a look and go, right, what am I going to do about it financially as well? But we, again, don't preach in that section. It's informative. It's humorous. But uh, so many people have read it and went, oh, I'm so glad I read that, but I wish I'd read it 10 years ago. (laughs) So we won't come back to it. We'll stay on it while we're here. I had a question about it later, but tell us the way way you opened that chapter and, and give us a couple of just your headline tips, the big concepts that are important for us to understand. 
Look, David, that, to, to be honest, they're not rocket science, but how I opened the chapter is reliving the first episode where I summoned up enough courage to actually meet with a financial advisor when I was about 40. And we sat at the table and, uh, and I waxed lyrical about the life that I wanted Jane and I to lead in our 60s and beyond, you know, how many houses I wanted us to have and, how, and traveling the world and all of this wonderful thing. <laughs> then we went through the meager assets that we actually had. There was this gaping chasm in the middle between these two peaks, this gap. So I, I call it, anyway, this wonderful gap that, that was just, it was mocking me in its vastness. So I, and I sat there and I thought, oh my goodness. And then I went, oh, I know. And so I grabbed the document that he was taking me through and I pulled it over towards myself. And like a flowchart, I drew a little square in the middle and I wrote inside the square and then a miracle happens. <laughs> and I pushed it back to him and said, you've forgotten about this step. He wasn't amused at all, wasn't to be he? honest. Oh, I thought it was hilarious. New financial planner. <laughs> if, if he doesn't find that funny. <laughs> so anyway, so the tips that I talk about, I'm not a financial planner. What I recommend is find a really good financial planner as early as possible and just do it. So many of us don't want, don't want to hear the bad news so we don't go along. But it's not a bad news. It's right. How are we going to make it happen? What choices can we make? And if as long as you're sensible about it and you have you know, plan B and plan C, then then it's all manageable. But I some really think some things that I, I say is mind fees, really pay attention to fees. I was stunned when I interviewed one of the leading passive funds, uh, that interviewed BlackRock and Vanguard in, uh, for the book. One of the senior execs at Vanguard said to me, just showed me the importance of just being really careful how much fees you actually pay which it can decimate a portfolio. So it's just pay attention to fees. It doesn't mean passive is better than active. You know, By all means, pay fees if your active fund manager is getting you better returns. But just pay attention to them because they can erode a portfolio or investment considerably. The other thing is some obvious ones like diversification. And also don't treat investing like betting. Sometimes it can really get to gambling. I go out and play golf with some friends and they go, oh, have you heard of this XYZ stock? You know, I'm putting 50 grand into that. And I'm thinking, whoa, you know, that number three at yeah, the- Yeah, number three at, at, the, at Randwick. At, uh, yeah, and Randwick is going to come in really well as well. You know, And a, a couple of others, find an advisor you trust, but also probably the most important is not to panic. When I was, I was working with the Abu Dhabi Investment Authority- in the Middle East uh, for a few years. And during the financial services crisis back in 2008, they simply didn't panic. Their portfolios went down 40%, which considering how many hundreds of billions they had was a, would have been an incredible moment. What they did brilliantly was frankly nothing. They went, okay, we're in this for the long term. We're long-term investors. We held. And so many of my parents' friends panicked and sold their you know, so if you self manage super, then they sold because they were panicking that they would be left with nothing. So they sell at the bottom, they end up buying in at the top and cementing a forty percent loss in their in their earnings, in their income, in their lifestyle. And it was so the one thing I just say is don't panic. And now my parents are, you know, in their eighties. They've actually focused on of the investments they do have, they're focusing on the dividends. And the test came in twenty twenty when Everything fell off the cliff for, for about two or three months. And mum and dad went, yeah, it doesn't matter. The dividends haven't changed, so that's great. And I went, oh, thank goodness. You know, don't panic is probably the biggest, the biggest lesson uh, in that part of the book, to be honest. 
Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Hey, Campbell, you write really optimistically about our work life after 50, the things that we can achieve and some of the mindsets that we can have going into it. You acknowledge very strongly ageism as the, the most common form of discrimination that we'll all face. There's a, you know, mm. the worm is turning in that regard, of course, but ageism aside, there is a lot to look forward to about our working life post 50. Tell us some of the good news. What, what are the positive spin that you've put on this in your book? Well, what I liked to do, and in the, in the money section, I interviewed quite a few financial services companies for the money section, but also found a number of companies that were actually, the light had gone on and they were treating their 50 plus employees as the experienced employees that they are. And they were trying to hold on to them, which is legal in general was, was probably, no, not legal in general, Aviva was, was one of the, the big ones. There's a new CEO came in for the, for the pensions and investment department or division or business really of, of Aviva. And she realized that the over 50s not only had all the experience, but they were leaving at twice the rate as, as anyone else. And that they weren't getting they weren't getting any development, any leadership development or personal development, because people are just were focusing on the youngins. So and they were a third of the workforce, you know, madness. So she turned that around and they're now running workshops on helping them to not only thrive in the second half of their life, but but also to to save more and they're giving them free financial planning advice and they're, and they're giving them leadership development and all of those things, which it just makes sense. You've got the most experienced part of your, of your workforce. So yes, while ageism is rife in society, which is madness seeing that the over 50s have three times as much wealth as, as everyone else and 54% of the consumer spend they're responsible for, and yet only 5% of the advertising spend is aimed at them. So the whole world is is in the process of changing, and it needs to. But I think more and more companies are realizing the value in their experienced employees. But what we say in the book is don't wait for your company to change. You've got to get on the front foot about ageism. You've got to get on the front foot. And not to be you know, a radical about it, but you take control. So if your employer so is, is not treating experienced people well or you're not getting it, then then let's talk about changing careers. So we talk about changing careers. We talk about working, about advancing in the workplace. We, we talk about starting your own business. There's almost half of small businesses in the Western world are run by people over 50. And those that are run by people over 50 are more successful than those the companies that run by people in their 20s, which makes sense because in the 20s, I mean, I don't know about you, but I knew so it was an sweet idiot. nothing. <laughs> No doubt about that. So we do write optimistically, but but it's not all you know sunflowers and earth muffins. You know, it's it's it, there's some real reality there. But the optimism starts from looking inside yourself and uh, and finding out what you're good at and getting the confidence to make the next stage to give it a go in the next in the next stage. So if if there's an overall message of your book, and there's so much to it, you know, there's the financial part, there's the work part, there's the the mindset and understanding change and and the way that yeah. you, we we approach change. And I felt very comfortable reading that part of your book because it was familiar ground for me. There's there's so much to your book, but if there were just one or two or a handful of messages that you just wish over 50s would believe you and step into the light and take that conscious positive step, 
what are those few things that we, you wish you could implant in people's brains? Okay, here's a few. One is the secret. The secret. That sounds arrogant. Doesn't it? The, the secret to uh, to the future, if you like, is not living for longer. It's living well for longer. So, so that's obvious. And I don't want to, you know, feel like we're a, we're a fitness and yoga guru. With Jane is a yoga guru, but anyway, about well, it's all about you know staying fit and living well. But it is, it is. If we can mentally and stay mentally well and physically fit, and that's up to us. I see so many of of our friends, and I've been in this in that trough too, where you just think, oh, you know, I've I've injured this, and I've got an ache here, and I've got a, this here. Well, I'm just going to veg out for the day, and. For a day, that's fine. But to actually keep fit is so, so important. And to keep mentally well is is so important as well. And I'm not just talking about doing Sudoku and Wordle, you know, to keep yourself mentally switched on. It's it's to to stay connected. So, yeah, mental and physical fit, fitness. We talk about that in Chapter 5 called Extending Our Prime. And I, I do obviously talk about not smoking and I talk about, you know, not drinking too much and not eating too much. They're the three obvious ones that a homo sapien can do to extend their life. But we also talk about laughter. Laughter is a wonderful uh, survey done in Norway, of a 15-year study of over 53,000 people in Norway that found, especially for women, women who laughed a lot were 50% less likely to die during the survey. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> what, while taking the survey? While taking this over, well, 15 years, you know, while taking this research, and it was something like 73% lower risk of heart disease. In other words, you know, approach, laughter, attitude is laughter can really be the best medicine. The most important two things that's one, the other two would be one is acceptance, it's the radical acceptance. It's actually it's great to fight because that whatever it is that your, your cause celeb is, because that gives you vitality, but, it, but it's working out what needs to be accepted but in a proactive, as we say, radical way. So, okay, this has happened. Can I do anything to change it? Yes, great, I will. Can I do anything to change it? No, I need to accept it and work out how to make the best of it. And I think that's in everything because there's a lot of stuff, bad stuff that happens in the second half as well. Let's not pretend. And that's- yeah, So we talk about aged care, we talk about all that sort of stuff, but our relationships change too. You know, Suddenly people after being together 30 years particularly women will turn around and say i'm not sure you're the person i married anymore you know and, and that is increasingly popular but so it's radical acceptance and then it's about believing in yourself so it's about looking at yourself in the mirror working out what your real strengths your real values you know what you're great at and what makes you special what are the things that you're never going to be good at and accept them and we've all got those and then digging deep and go, right, how can I use those positives to do something to build purpose in the second half of our life? You make the point brilliantly, and I did. I wasn't aware of this, that there's a big discussion in your book about menopause, and there was a, 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 a smaller sort of nod to the less convincing male equivalent. But you make the point that males are statistically – down in the dumps in their 40s and they will bounce back by about the time they're 60 and and that same it's pattern remarkable. is repeated in an, in our um apes cousins as well and mm. even something and sheep sheep and yeah, rams crazy. i mean really the research they did for that just made me laugh i mean the chapter is called menopause versus menopause mm. which is a bit cheeky but 
the menopause uh, section, which is eighty percent of that chapter that, that Jane wrote, is brilliant. It's well worth well worth reading, and I won't deign to I won't be able to do it justice. So I recommend you yeah, for obvious reasons. <laughs> But yes, what I did learn about, then I looked at, well, is the male equivalent, you know, the pale male equivalent, the midlife crisis real? And the answer is yes-ish. It is real, but no one knows why. So in, in our 40s, we tend to have a huge dip in satisfaction and no one knows why. And then we have a bit of, that's the midlife crisis. And then we all want to do something about it. But even if we don't do anything about it, by the time we're in our 60s, our satisfaction level is back to how we were in our 20s. Isn't that amazing? And in our 70s, it's even higher again. And it's something that's inbuilt in, in the male. And they found exactly the same thing in apes. Mm-hmm. And then hilariously, I think you'll like the section, found it also in rams, yeah. which makes no sense. We thought it was genetic. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's genetic way back you know, when, when apes met rams. But it's, it's fascinating that there is definitely a dip in satisfaction in in men. So what to do about that is actually to accept it, to go, okay, this is weirdly a biological normal thing. I'm going to feel better in 20 years. But in the meantime, (laughs) let's not hang around. What are we going to do? So many times tonight in this chat, you've reminded me of this serenity prayer. Now, there's not too many prayers I can quote, but there is a reason that this is so oft mentioned. You know, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I thought about that so many times as you read, I read your book. Hey, you know, this, you've, you know, I'm going to hit you with some of my lame thoughts now and and get you to reflect on these. When you were talking about the Kubler-Ross model and you, as I said, you've brought it back to life for me, for me a number of times. It's, you know, it's that sort of trough that you can sink into and you make this point about, People can stay there too long and they can become victims of what's happened to them, whether it's minor scale in life or a grand change that none of us would want to have experienced. And there really is a real loss, but some people will take on the victimhood and stay there for a very long time, if not forever, where others will climb out of it and they'll, they'll experiment with getting better and decide and accept and move on. And it reminded me of the one day at uni that I went and listened and the lecturer talked that day about Eric Erickson. Have you ever heard of Eric Erickson's model of development? He talks about, and I've always remembered this since the mid-90s when I learned about it, the, the idea that we go through eight stages as human beings, and at each stage there's a battle between good and evil. There's trust versus mistrust at the very first stage, and then autonomy versus shame. Now, the very last stage, I'll jump to that, is integrity versus despair. And I remember being struck in the lecture. That that is so true. Wow. When you meet an old person, you either meet someone who is relaxed, happy in their own skin. They don't, you know, they might have lost and loved and lost and and gone broke and whatever, but they're just they're cool with that. And then there are those who are in despair about everything that's happened to them. And you made me think about that when you were talking about you know, we're going to go through changes in our second half of life. Some of them aren't going to be great. We're going to lose loved ones and friends. Our relationships are going to change. We might get made redundant. We might not have as much money as we hope to have when we can't work anymore. But there's a choice to make in those experiences, and that's acceptance or not. And the difference between a satisfied older person 
and a dissatisfied older person, someone who's in despair, is not wealth or whether their spouse lived with them for 80 years or any of those individual items. It's how they've approached each of them. And, it's within, isn't it? And whether they've been okay with that. I could look up Eric Erickson's. That sounds amazing. Integrity versus despair. I really like that. And it's true. And it doesn't matter how much money you've got either. You can still have all this money and still despair internally. Despair is, is an interesting phrase. But integrity is the one. Uh, that comes from liking yourself, to be perfectly honest. But it comes from liking yourself and trusting yourself. And there's something about, without writing them on the walls, the values and the approach to life that you have. And that's what several of the final chapters are trying to, to touch on. But I really like that one. I like that. Thank you. Hey, the, Thank you. I might use that with my client. The beauty of oh, Eric Erickson is so usable. I'm surprised we don't hear about it more often. The beauty of his model is you go through these eight stages through life and you can totally see them. But when he describes them, you're like, oh, yeah, totally get that. <laughs> and there's a, a positive and a negative outcome. And the idea is as we go through life, we either collect positives. And the more you collect early, the more likely you are to keep collecting the positive outcome at each stage. How interesting. And if you collect a few negative ones early in life, then you're more likely to go to the negative side as you as you go through life. It's amazing. Like the first one is trust versus mistrust. And that's as an infant, if you start to develop trust around you that when you've soiled your nappy or you're you're hungry or you're tired, you will be taken care of, then you trust the world around you. The world is a place to be trusted. Actually, that's really important. What happens in the first 18 months of life is I had no idea. It's a story for another time, but I had no idea how important that is. So yes, and that's where trust or mistrust is built. How interesting. Now, my last question I'm going to ask you, when I was talking about my grandparents before, I was also thinking about a time when lots of people went to church. And you know, if you believe in eternal life after death, then you might be able to convince yourself that you don't really need to make the most of this second half, that you can just ease into Ooh, it. Oh, there's a contentious comment. And, now, and, and you didn't mention this in your book, but I, but I wonder if this extra attention we're paying to the second half, wanting to, for it to be a really fantastic phase of our life rather than us just kind of petering out, is to do with the fact that much far fewer of us, of us go to church and believe in in all of the Bible type stuff. Whereas in the past, in my grandparents' era, everyone went to church. Everyone believed in eternal life. And for some of them, they would really truly have believed that when they died, they went somewhere that was nirvana forever. So why not just ease into that? Why squeeze every drop out of life? That's fascinating. Uh, that's a whole hour-long discussion in, in, in itself. I suppose I nod to that in a few of the chapters where we talk about contentment and what the Jewish ode to contentment is is brilliant, but how the Christ, the Bible looks at contentment and how the, the how Islam looks at it as, as well, which are remarkably similar. But it's all it's all based on yes, if you believe, you will have eternal contentment, eternal life. And if you, and if you don't, you're damned. Which I've always found that a really difficult thing to reconcile in my head. But that's a separate question. I think you've got a point there. But I also think that there will be, you know, that there are devout Christians who do want to make the most of their time on earth as well, who who don't see a great distinction. Yes, there are some people who, as you can probably see watch, watching the news, have a fairly nihilistic, I think is, is how you pronounce the word, you know, view of life. And the quicker we can bring about the second heart, the eternal, the eternal eternity, bit. the better. But, you know, but that's, that's, sort of, that's sort of dangerous cult 
areas that we're we're drifting into. I think it's interesting. Yes, I I think I would go along with you to say yes, there probably is. I think it's probably driving the need for us to go. We've got thirty, forty years, and there may be nothing left after that. Let's make the most of it. But I I don't think it's it's exclusively that. I know you know a, a lot of people who are religious who are genuine you know Christians or g- genuinely or Hindu or uh, Buddhist or and Muslims as well and and they still want to achieve in the rest of their life. It's what the word achieve, how that's defined, how you define that is important. As we say in the book, men tend to think of that through work-related work and status. That's a rash generalization. Some people think work and status and other people, how can I help as many people? How can I make my life, the second half of my life, as purposeful and as meaningful as possible? And so while yes, I think some people will ease their way into into the knowledge that they're they're going to be in Nirvana for forever. I tending to think as we're talking about this is that there's more commonality between churchgoers and non-churchgoers that want to make the second half more purposeful, no matter what they believe will happen after death. But I like your thoughts. I, li- I like that I tripped you up for a while there, but then you thought it through as you were talking and you landed <laughs> on a pretty good point. They have more in, in common than not. All right, my last thought. I went into your, your retirement chapter. I read the first few paragraphs. I thought, you know what, Campbell, I disagree with you here. I can't wait for retirement because I am uh- going to smoke retirement. You were talking about retirement being a dirty word, but then – we actually land we 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 agree it's just that you framed it differently i realized that you were brushing away that typical kind of that terrible bygone cliche retirement where you hang your hat up and you sit on a park bench and you feed the pigeons because that's not what i ever imagined retirement i'm waiting to die yes it's a passive post full time work is how that's why the r word is exactly god's waiting room to complete the circle yeah, and in the past, that's what retirement has meant. So we need to redefine, as I talk about, I think one of the chapters is redefining retirement. We need to we need to come up with another definition. And it's purely just leaving full-time, you know, employment. And once you think, okay, that's all retirement is leaving full-time employment, there's so much to happen. It's starting your own business, it's working three days a week, it's it's active. It's the you're right. It's the passive retirement. Writing a book. It's playing golf. It's swimming in the ocean. I mean, I, I I'm not going to be able to. I'll be too busy when I'm retired to be, think about the work that I'm missing. And that's what we agreed on. I thought, no, I disagree with you here, Campbell. That then you convinced me it's the type of retirement that we're talking about. I've been looking forward to retirement since my early twenties, and I haven't changed my mind on that. I've I've got the plan, and it's exactly what you talked about. It's that active stimulated, happy retirement. I can't see you sitting back and, you know, taking up knitting this and is thinking, it. oh, well, what am I yeah. going to do for the next 30 just, years? Just wait for the reaper to come. <laughs> That's not <laughs> going to happen. Campbell, always a pleasure to have you on the show. I've loved your latest book. When you bring out your fourth, I'll be one of the first to read it and have you back on the show. Thank you for coming to visit. Thanks, David. It's been fabulous, as usual. And that was Campbell McPherson. I hope you loved that chat as much as I did. I'm an unabashed Campbell fan. I love his work and the way he talks about ideas, challenges, and life. And those final pieces of advice from Campbell. Number one, 
It's not about living for longer. It's about living well for longer. So look after your body and mind. Number two, radical acceptance. Fighting for your cause is great, but there are some things you will have to accept in a proactive and radical way. Learn how to make the best of the things you cannot control. And number three, believe in yourself. Look at yourself in the mirror and ask yourself, what are my strengths and values? And then work out how you can use those positives to build purpose in the second half of your life. As always, I'll share these lessons and others that I took from my conversation with Campbell on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.